0: Section two of Mrs. Shelley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Mrs. Shelley by Lucy Maddox Rossetti. Chapter one. Parentage. Part two. Now began the complication of reasons and deeds which caused bitter grief in not only one generation. Mary was prompted by loneliness, love, and danger on all hands. There was risk in proclaiming herself an English subject by marriage, if indeed there was at the time the possibility of such a marriage as would have been valid in England, though as the wife of an American citizen she was safe. Thus, at a time when all laws were defied, she took the fatal step of trusting in Imlay's honour and constancy, and confident of her own pure motives, entered into a union which her letters to him, full of love, tenderness and fidelity, proved that she regarded as a sacred marriage. All the circumstances, and not least the pathetic way she writes to him for their child later on, prove how she only wished to remain faithful to him. It was now that the sad experiences of her early life told upon her, and warped her better judgment. She who had seen so much of the misery of married life when love was dead, regarded that side, not considering the sacred relationship, the right side of marriage, which she came to understand later. Too late, alas! So passed this année terrible, and with it Mary's short-lived happiness with Imlay, for before the end we find her writing, evidently saddened by his repeated absences. She followed him to Havre, where in April their child Fanny was born, and for a while happiness was restored, and Mary lived in comfort with him, her time fully occupied between work and love for Imlay and their child, but this period was short, for in August he was called to Paris on business. She followed him— but another journey of his to England only finished the separation. Work of some sort having been ever her one resource, she started for Norway with Fanny and a maid, furnished with a letter of Imlay's, in which he requested, all men to know that he appoints Mary Imlay, his wife, to transact all his business for him. Her letters, published shortly after her return from Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, divested of the personal details, were considered to show a marked advance in literary style, and, from the slow modes of travelling, and the many letters of introduction to people in all the towns and villages she visited, she was enabled to send home characteristic details of all classes of people. The personal portions of the letters are to be found among her posthumous works, and these, with letters written after her return, and when she was undoubtedly convinced of Imlay's baseness and infidelity, are terrible and pathetic records of her misery—misery which drove her to an attempt at suicide. This was fortunately frustrated, so that she was spared to meet with a short time of happiness later, and to prove to herself and Godwin, both previous sceptics in the matter, that lawful marriage can be happy. Mary, rescued from despair, returned to work, the restorer, and refused all assistance from Imlay, not degrading herself by receiving a monetary compensation where faithfulness was wanting. She also provided for her child Fanny, as Imlay disregarded entirely his promises of a settlement on her. As her literary work brought her again in contact with the society she was accustomed to, so her health and spirits revived, and she was again able to hold her place as one of its celebrities. And now it was, that her friendship was renewed with that other celebrity whose philosophy ranged beyond his age and century and probably beyond some centuries to come His advanced ideas are nevertheless what most thinking people would hope that the race might attain to when mankind shall have reached a higher status and selfishness should be less allowed in creeds or rather in practice for how small the resemblance between the founder of a creed and its followers is but too apparent. So now Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin, the author of Political Justice, have again met, and this time not under circumstances as adverse as in November 1790, when he dined in her company at Mr. Johnson's, and was disappointed because he wished to hear the conversation of Thomas Paine, who was a taciturn man, and he considered that Mary engrossed too much of the talk. Now it was otherwise. A literary style had gained greatly in the opinion of Godwin as of others, and as all their subjects of interest were similar their friendship increased and melted gently into mutual love, as exquisitely described by Godwin himself in a book now little known, and this love which ended in marriage had no afterbreak. But we must now again retrace our steps, for in the father of Mary Shelley, we have another of the representative people of his time, whose early life and antecedents must not be passed over. William Godwin, the seventh of thirteen children, was born at Wisbeach, Cambridgeshire, on March 3, 1756. His parents, both of respectable, well-to-do families, were well known in their native place, his great-great-grandfather having been mayor of Newbury in 1706. The father, John Godwin, became a dissenting minister, and William was brought up in all the strictness of a sectarian country home of that period. His mother was equally strict in her views, and a cousin, who became one of the family, a Miss Godwin, afterwards Mrs. Sotheran, with whom William was an especial favourite, brought in aid her strongly Calvinistic tendencies. His first studies began with an account of the pious deaths of many godly children, and often did he feel willing to die if he could, with equal success, engage the admiration of his friends and the world. His mother devoutly believed that all who differed from the basis of her own religious views would endure the eternal torments of hell, and his father seriously reproved his levity, when, one Sunday, he happened to take the cat in his arms while walking in the garden. All this naturally impressed the child at the time, and his chief amusement or pleasure was preaching sermons in the kitchen every Sunday afternoon, unmindful whether the audience was duly attentive or not. From a dame's school, where, by the age of eight, he had read through the whole of the Old and New Testament, he passed to one held by a certain Mr. Ackers, celebrated as a penman, and also moderately efficient in Latin and mathematics. Godwin next became the pupil of Mr. Samuel Newton, whose Sandemanian views, surpassing those of Calvin in their wholesale holocaust of souls, for a time impressed him, till later thought caused him to detest both these views and the master who promulgated them. Indeed, it is not to be wondered at that so thinking a person as Godwin, remembering the rules laid down by those he loved and respected in his childhood, should have wandered far into the abstract labyrinths of right and wrong, and, wishing to simplify what was right, should have travelled in his imagination into the dim future, and have laid down a code beyond the scope of present mortals. Well for him, perhaps, and for his code, if this is yet so far beyond that it is not taken up and distorted out of all resemblance to his original intention, before the time for its possible practical application comes. For Godwin himself, it was also well, that, with these uncongenial early surroundings, he, when the time came to think, was of the calm, most calm and unimpassioned philosophic temperament, instead of the high poetic nature. Not that the two may not sometimes overlap and mingle, but with Godwin, the downfall of old ideas led to reasoning out new theories in clear prose and even this he would not give to be rashly and indiscriminately read at large, but published in three guinea volumes, knowing well that those who could expend that sum on books are usually not inclined to overthrow the existing order of things. In fact, he felt it was the rich who wanted preaching to more than the poor. Apart from sectarian doctrines, his tutor, Mr. Newton, seems to have given Godwin the advantage of the free range of his library, and doubtless this was excellent education for him at that time. After he had acted as usher for over a year, from the age of fifteen, his mother, at his father's death in 1772, wished him to enter Homerton Academy, but the authorities would not admit him on suspicion of Sandemanianism. He, however, gained admittance to Hoxton College. Here he planned tragedies on the Iphigenia and the death of Caesar, and also began to study Sandeman's work from a library, to find out what he was accused of. This probably caused, later, his horror of these ideas, and also started his never-ending search after truth. In 1777 he became, in his turn, a dissenting minister, until, with reading and fresh acquaintances ever widening his views, gradually his profession became distasteful to him, and in 1788, on quitting Beaconsfield, he proposed opening a school. His Life of Lord Chatham, however, gained notice, and he was led to other political writing, and so became launched on a literary career. With his simple tastes, he managed not only for years to keep himself till he became celebrated, but he was also a great help to different members of his family, Several of these did not come as well as William out of the ordeal of their strict education, but caused so little gratification to their mother and elder brother, a farmer who resided near the mother, that she destroyed all their correspondence, nearly all William's also, as it might relate to them. Letters from the cousin, Mrs. Sutheran, show, however, that William Godwin's novel-writing was likewise a sore point in his family. In the midst of his literary work and philosophic thought, it was natural that Godwin should get associated with other men of advanced opinions. Joseph Fawcett, whose literary and intellectual eminence was much admired in his day, was one of the first to influence Godwin. His declamation against domestic affections must have coincided well with Godwin's unimpassioned justice. Thomas Holcroft, with his curious ideas of death and disease, whose ardent republicanism led to his being tried for his life as a traitor. George Dyson, whose abilities and zeal in the cause of literature and truth promised much that was unfortunately never realised. These, and later Samuel Taylor Coleridge, were acknowledged by Godwin to have greatly influenced his ideas. Godwin acted according to his own theories of right in adopting and educating Thomas Cooper, a second cousin, whose father died ruined in India. The rules laid down in his diary show that Godwin strove to educate him successfully, and he certainly gained the youth's confidence, and launched him successfully in his own chosen profession as an actor. Godwin seems always to have adhered to his principles, and, after the success of his Life of Chatham, when he became a contributor to the Political Herald, he attracted the attention of the Whig Party, to whose cause he was so useful that Fox proposed, through Sheridan, to set a fund aside to pay him as editor. This, however, was not accepted by Godwin, who would not lose his independence by becoming attached to any party. He was, naturally, to a great extent, a follower of Rousseau, and a sympathiser with the ideas of the French Revolution, and was one of the so-called French Revolutionists at whose meetings Horn took— Holcroft, Stanhope, and others figured. Nor did he neglect to defend, in the Morning Chronicle, some of these when on their trial for high treason. Though, from his known principles, he was himself in danger. And without doubt his clear exposition of the true case greatly modified public opinion, and helped to prevent an adverse verdict. Among Godwin's multifarious writings are his novels, some of which had great success, especially Caleb Williams. Also his sketch of English history contributed to the annual register. His historical writing shows much research and study of old documents. On comparing it with the contemporary work of his friends, such as Coleridge, it becomes evident that his knowledge and learning were utilised by them. But these works were anonymous. By his political justice he became famous. This work is a philosophical treatise, based on the assumption that man, as a reasoning being, can be guided wholly by reason, and that, were he educated from this point of view, laws would be unnecessary. It must be observed here that Godwin could not then take into consideration the laws of heredity, now better understood, how the criminal has not only the weight of bad education and surroundings against him, but also how the very formation of the head is in certain cases an almost insuperable evil he considered many of the laws relating to property marriage etc unnecessary as people guided by reason would not for instance wish for wealth at the expense of starving brethren far in the distance as the realization of this doctrine may seem it should still be remembered that as with each physical discovery the man of genius must foresee as Columbus imagined land where he found America, as a planet is fixed by the astronomer before the telescope has revealed it to his mortal eye, so, in the world of psychology and morals, it is necessary to point out the aim to be attained before human nature has reached those divine qualifications, which are only shadowed forth here and there by more than usually elevated natures. In fact, Godwin, who sympathized entirely with the theories of the French Revolution, and even surpassed French ideas on most subjects, disapproved of the immediate carrying out of these ideas and views. He wished for preaching and reasoning, till people should gradually become convinced of the truth, and the rich should be as ready to give as the poor to receive. Even in the matter of marriage, though strongly opposed to it personally, on philosophical grounds, not from the ordinary trite reasoning against it. He yielded his opinion to the claim of individual justice, towards the woman whom he came to love with an undying affection, and for whom, fortunately for his theories, he needed not to set aside the impulse of affection for that of justice. And these remarks bring us again to the happy time in the lives of Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, when friendship melted into love, and they were married shortly afterwards, in March, 1797, at Old St. Pancras Church, London. This new change in her life interfered no more with the energy for work with Mary Wollstonecraft than with Godwin. They adopted the singular, though in their case probably advantageous, decision, to continue each to have a separate place of abode, in order that each might work uninterruptedly though as pointed out by an earnest student of their character they probably wasted more time in their constant interchange of notes on all subjects than they would have lost by a few conversations on the other hand as their thoughts were worth recording we have the benefit of their plan the short notes which passed between mary and godwin as many as three and four in a day as well as letters of considerable length written during a tour which Godwin made in the Midland Counties with his friend Basil Montague, show how deep and simple their affection was, that there was no need of hiding the passing cloud, that they both equally disliked and wished to simplify domestic details. There was, for instance, some sort of slight dispute as to who should manage a plumber, on which occasion Mary seems to have been somewhat hurt at its being put upon her as giving an idea of her inferiority. This, with the tender jokes about Godwin's icy philosophy, and the references to a little William, whom they were both anxiously expecting, all evince the tender devotion of husband and wife, whose relationship was of a nature to endure through ill or good fortune. Little Fanny was evidently only an added pleasure to the two, and Godwin's thought of her at a distance, and his choice of the prettiest mug at Wedgwood's, with green and orange tawny flowers, testify to the fatherly instinct of Godwin. But, alas, this loving married friendship was not to last long, for the day arrived, August thirtieth, 1797, which had been so long expected, and the hopeful state of the case is shown in three little letters, written by Mary to her husband, for she wished him to be spared anxiety by absence. And there was born a little girl, not the William so quaintly spoken of but the Mary, whose future life we must try and realize. Even now her first trouble comes, for within a few hours of the child's birth dangerous symptoms began with the mother. Ten days of dread anxiety ensued, and not all the care of intelligent watchers, nor the constant waiting for service of the husband's faithful intimate friends, nor the skill of the first doctors, could save the life which was doomed—fate must wreak its relentless will her work remains to help many a struggling woman, and still to give hope of more justice to follow." "Perchance at one important moment it misled her own child." And so the mysteries of the workings of fate and the mysteries of death joined with those of a new life. End of chapter one, part two.